0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Couple Podcast. This is Siddharth here. And I'm Dr. Shish. So today with us, we have Dr. Sujata Tyagarajan, the lead paediatric ICU consultant at the Aster RV Hospital in J.P. Nagar, who's also the founder of Pedistars India, which is a national society for training and research in simulation in healthcare in India with international affiliations. A graduate of the Bangalore Medical College and trained in paediatrics and paediatric ICUs from various reputed institutions in UK for over 14 years, She's come back to India and worked as a senior consultant at various hospitals in Bangalore before joining the Astra RV in 2021. Welcome to the Odd Couple Podcast, Dr. Sujata. Uh,
1: good to see you and thank you for calling me.
0: Pleasure's all ours.
2: So, what a second wave we had, guys. My God. I'm just thinking that it's just about over and uh, we're already thinking about what's going to come next. But if we had to go back and think about what was happening. What happened in the second wave, ma'am? What do you think happened? Do you think we were unprepared or do you think that it was just sheer numbers that, you know, even if we prepared for the worst, we could never prepare enough? What what was your view of the second wave?
1: So I think uh, that's a very interesting question, Ashish. So basically what we found was uh, in the second wave, if I am just uh, sticking to children as such, we found that we saw roughly the same numbers both in the first wave as well as in the second wave. But what we found interesting was the number of children that needed hospitalization in the acute phase, that was very high in number in the second wave compared to what we saw in the first wave. In the first wave, majority of the kids were like mild illness. They managed at home, you know, and they were incidentally found. Okay, Whereas in the second wave, we found a lot more children needing ICU services. That's what we found in the second wave. So, that makes us kind of always a little bit anxious about what the third wave is going to be like. But uh, the second wave had acute COVID in parallel with the what we call the MISC, which is the uh, post-COVID illness seen specifically in
2: children. Now we'll come to MISC and we'll talk about uh, MISC a bit later and try and give more information about it. But i just like to take a little from the last wave which happened, you know, because we were caught off guard in a certain sense. Like, I think if you ask me personally, I would say before the media caught on, one month before that, we knew the wave had started. We knew the, the beds were filling, right? But nobody was listening or nobody cared until, you know, it finally was like things we couldn't control. And that's when people started saying, okay, yes, now we've got... because." I remember saying that, oh, there's no way the government is ever gonna lock down a second wave because of the economy, you know, which took a beating with the first wave. But we had to. There was no choice. You know, actually that's the only thing which saved us, I think, you know, pretty much. So so in that sense, you know, Is there a fear that in the third wave that are we prepared or is that why we are scared about the third wave?
1: So I agree with you, Dr. Ashish. So actually, I had just joined RV and what we found was, you know, they thought they'll open up the third floor or not. And then suddenly, no, there's no place in the hospital. Absolutely. Every bed got occupied in no time. So, yeah, that was and it happened in like within a week's time or two weeks time before we could blink and see what happened. So, yeah, I mean, uh, the second wave, absolutely, we were not at all prepared. I think the one thing which helped us was at least the healthcare workers were vaccinated. Very true. So that, that kind of, to some extent, helped us, I guess, to at least, uh, you know, uh, get through the thing. Because even if our uh, colleagues had illness, it wasn't like a critical illness, although we did have a few colleagues going through the crisis. Correct. Um, So, in terms of the third wave and the run-up towards it, compared to second wave, we now have 18 plus years people at least vaccinated in the community. So, we'll have to see how the third wave is going to pan out. If we uh, look back at what is happening in the UK, which is now currently going through the third wave, we are seeing that they are also roughly like 40 to 60% vaccinated in the UK. Or their caseload is like pretty much like what we had a few uh, you know weeks ago before the lockdown. So their their numbers are also going up, but their mortality is staying flat. So that's the only respite we have. So I'm thinking that we'll have to just cautiously wait and watch, work towards the immunization of the community, and then see. So the concern here is probably for the kids.
0: That comes my next question where Yes, as rightly mentioned, we weren't prepared for the second wave, but thankfully, the healthcare professionals were vaccinated and it could be handled to a certain extent. Now, I'm sure we have great learning from the first and second wave. So how prepared are we for the third wave? And as a layman, the only question in my mind is, when is it going to happen, more importantly? And how severe is it going to be? And we are hearing about the different variants like Kappa, Lambda, and everything else. Uh, We don't know how it's mutating. So could we throw more light on that on how are we prepared for this third wave and when it's going to happen?
1: So in the first wave, we hardly understood what the virus was. We had like multiple like trials of therapies that were tried, tested. People like threw in anything, you name it, like hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin. There were lots of things that we had tried out. By the time the second wave came, we were like, we at least learned what doesn't work. And so we cut down a lot of the other things. And uh, probably we learned what works better. We learned more about the disease, their patterns and everything. Uh, I think the Delta variant that we have and the Delta Plus that we had, you know, was a highly mutating one in India, which wasn't seen elsewhere. And that gave us like a little bit more challenge. In terms of understanding and preparing for it. Nevertheless, I think India still managed pretty much well compared to the challenges that we've thrown, especially in terms of streamlining things. You know, in terms of, you know, how do we quarantine? Earlier, uh, the quarantine was happening in such a way that, you know, somebody in one building had, uh, you know, even one person who had it, the entire street was locked down Long, and things correct, like yeah. that in the first wave, and in the second wave, we learned that it's already been there in the community. And we had a lot of family clusters in the second wave. So we learned the way it was spreading so easily in the second wave. So a lot of kids, parents, their grandparents, everybody kind of being affected in clusters. That was a big challenge, especially when we were looking after children, when their own parents were actually ill and they themselves were admitted you know, a couple of our kids who were admitted, they lost their parents as well in the interim or their grandparents. It was a very grim picture. So when we look at the third wave and how do we kind of, you know, how prepared are we is the question that you're asking. So I think uh, I would cautiously wait and watch. I have a few anxieties about how it may pan out. One of which is, okay, now the parents at least are going to be vaccinated. So maybe they will have relatively milder illness. So at least that way, maybe we will be coping better. The second thing is about the children. There are still vaccine trials going on. So hopefully, we may have some kind of support being given for them. But that's still a long way away. And I don't know whether we'll do it well in time. We have now had our lockdown released a lot of unlocking happening people are still kind of forgetting their covid etiquette and the vaccination itself is making them sort of secure so they are like forgetting their covid etiquettes so we'll have to see how the new mutations will manifest but i certainly see that children will be with a vulnerable population and uh, there's a lot of prediction about the run-up towards it so the expected predictions are probably sometime september october october realistically we may see things are like really bad for kids that is the expected run up
2: now ma'am when you say kids now when i'm thinking what happened before If you look at it now, just before the run-up to the second um, wave, we had, like you mentioned, the medical fraternity was vaccinated, as well as the 45 and above was vaccinated. Now, was that the reason why we saw that in the second wave, the majority of people were affected were the younger adults? And if that is true, then because we are vaccinating the younger adults, now 18 plus, that we feel that the children will be affected? Is that the, the way we are predicting the model? Or is it from what we are seeing from Europe because we are like three months or four months behind Europe? How are we predicting? What what are we using for?
1: Yeah, so the predictions are based on uh, quite rightly as what you said. So we had the population that were vaccinated. Their presentation of the illness was not that severe. Whereas the young adults this time and some of them didn't even have comorbidities and they yeah. also presented you know, and they were quite critical. In fact, some of them lost their lives also while they were in uh, ICU. So that was what we saw. And, the, you know, the ones with comorbidities kind of, you know, suffered even more. That's how we saw. So yes, quite rightly, that is the expected prediction model. So you are already unvaccinated. Whether these variants are sufficient enough for, uh, you know, so the virus has to find some kind of target, they will mutate and they will actually affect these vulnerable population. So that's how children are expected to be affected. When we look at the models of the first and second wave in the other countries, we are still following the same and similar trend. We saw that the under 40s and like, you know, the 18 plus being affected in the second wave significantly, even in the Western countries. So, yes, that is the expected prediction model.
0: Now, since we're on the topic of vaccination, how equipped is the current vaccine now? I've got the like, first dose. I'm waiting for my second dose uh, in a couple of weeks. Obviously, both of you have got your vac- both the dose vaccines done a while back. But my question is, how equipped are the vaccine or the vaccinated folks or the vaccine itself to handle the different mutations of this virus which is coming about how effective will it be as a defense mechanism
1: yeah that's a good question so so basically what we are uh, finding is in terms of the vaccination there is different like sensitivity specificities and the effectiveness being predicted especially are you taking covaxine or are you taking Shield? and now you have the sputnik and Moderna and you know the Pfizer vaccines kind of in the race So, these were all done and prepared for based on the first wave variants. So, the Delta variant, how it has protected, very few know. But what we can tell is based on the experience of the small number of the healthcare team that got vaccinated just after the first wave. So, our prediction is based on how many of those got affected in the second wave and the fact that Although it was a Delta variant, the number of people who got affected in the second wave was not that severe. That's all we can say. It wasn't that severe. It wasn't
2: like it. And those who got affected didn't get, need the ICU.
1: Correct. Yeah. It was not severe. That was the only solace we have. So the expectation is that even though there is a lot of mutations that's happening, the vaccines that have been given so far should be good enough as of now. Now, with that baseline vaccination status, if there are new variants, how they will behave, only time can tell. But the expectation is there will be some small spike in the number of positive cases. And that people have already started thinking that especially the healthcare teams that got or the population that got vaccinated after the first wave, they have people have been monitoring the antibody levels and they find that there is a drift down of the COVID antibody levels in these population. And so people are even thinking of booster doses for the healthcare teams Correct. and run up towards the
2: third wave. But when we talk about these different strains and the vaccine being made for the first wave, etc., the first strains which were there, now we keep hearing very commonly the the Delta Plus, the baby of the Delta. So is there any information on whether our vaccine works for the Plus or it doesn't work for the Plus?
1: So as of now, we have seen that, you know, especially the ones that had at least one dose, okay, they also had the infections this time. And even though they had one dose of vaccine, they also did not have very severe illness. Yeah. Okay. But yeah. there is a small population that had that needed to enter the ICU. But still, the relative outcomes were better. That's all we can say. Compared to the first wave where they were totally unvaccinated and, uh, right. you know, that just, and we also didn't know much about the disease also. That's a combination of things. We now know how to manage COVID illness. We know how to anticipate. We have some kind of, you know, streamlined protocols, more awareness. Probably, you know, I remember in the first wave, every day the information used to change. Whereas by the time we came to the second wave, we had some kind of protocolization happening. And we had some kind of standardization of everybody having similar approach. And we had done some studies on the first wave. we knew the use of steroids, when to use it, we know how to use the what works, what doesn't work. So we had kind of some knowledge. So it may be a combination of things that has helped us to kind of look at the outcomes in the second wave to say that maybe we were relatively better. But the numbers, even though were overwhelmingly high, We found that at least the vaccinated population, they did not have that severe an illness and that is the key take home for us. So to say that even though there is some variation and mutation happening, some kind of protection is still there. So it's still recommended that we go ahead and get them vaccinated.
2: Yeah. The other thing which was very surprising also, if you actually look at the graph of this wave, it's a mountain. It goes up and it just drops right down. And I don't know what to pin that to. The the drop, which is so just like the way it went up, it came down. What do we pin that to? is it is it the vaccination or the lockdown was so effective or is it a combination of the two? what, what do you think? I about?
1: think it's a combination of everything.
2: everything
1: <laughs> I think the yeah. spike had just kind of triggered the people to get some seriousness about what's going on correct, And the correct. lockdown had to be done to streamline the resources and people opened up lots of uh, you know avenues to make sure that they managed these cases at a rapid level. You know, the there was rat, rapid upskilling that happened.
2: Correct. You know, a yeah. lot of
1: like you know, modular ICUs and like you know home care, oxygen cylinders being delivered home.
2: I remember going into the hospital and and um, one day there was nothing, and then the next day there was a whole modular ICU set up outside. You know, and wow. it, it was fast. So in that way, you know, I find we as Indians are so resilient. And, uh, you know, when we put our mind to something, we can actually do stuff because the way that second wave started, it was a disaster. But, you know, the way you can see that spike just drop is a clear indication of everything rallying together. And getting such a great outcome. But it also leaves that little bit of a fear factor for me that, you know, the way the last one went up, if we lose our way, you know, which we're very capable of also, because that's another thing which we Indians are proud of, you know. We don't <laughs> care, we'll get back and do whatever we were doing before, catch up from where we left off. It can happen again, you know. So yeah. Yeah,
0: I don't think it's only only Indians. I think there are idiots across the globe. I don't think Absolutely there is any right. Absolutely. classification of uh, <laughs> country, creed or color or religion. But yeah. but a question which I have since it kind of triggered uh, from what you were saying, exactly a year back is when we had our first wave. And a year later, we're having the second wave. And there was like a good eight months gap. Yes, we didn't prepare well, all that aside. But why is it that we're predicting a third wave within a couple of months and not in the year, I understand we are a couple of months behind from the UK or the Europe thing, and and that is the base for the model. But is it a seasonal thing like a flu? Because even flu is a highly mutative kind of uh, infection, right? And so is this. So is would it be seasonal, or are we just like trying to be a little more ca- extra cautious? that it's going to happen in a couple of months?
1: So that's a good question. So basically, when we look back, you know, when we look back in the last one year, the profile of, you know, patients that are admitted into our ICU, you know, earlier we used to see the winter peak of flu flu patients. Okay, so the H1N1, the influenza and all of these viral infections. Very interestingly, across the globe, especially I can talk to you about our PICU patients, we simply didn't see them. Whatever it was, we just didn't simply see them, you know, in the UK uh, and I practice both in India and UK and in the UK, winter pressure is something that we dread, you know, that we dread like anything. We always have extra staff, extra beds, everything created to handle the winter pressure in the NHS. And just last year, it was only COVID dedicated. We didn't see that many flu cases at all. Okay, flu or, um, you know, what we call bronchiolitis that uh, is common in our young infants. We didn't see that at all. Um, I was asking almost all the PICUs, let alone the winter countries. I was asking, you know, uh, people in Australia and New Zealand and they told they just simply didn't see such admissions. And the pediatric intensivists weren't that busy at all during the COVID season. In fact, all their pediatric beds were taken over by the adult services. So to come to your question, is it winter or weather related? I'm not so sure. I don't think we have uh, that much of clarity yet. I can tell you about the incidence of these infections.
0: Probably also because of this particular COVID etiquette that we keep talking about. I think a lot more people are sanitizing their hands and personal hygiene is uh, taking more care. You're wearing masks. You're maintaining social distancing would be my guess that led to a lesser influenza infections across. Could it Also
2: be that during the first wave, what we saw were the the different strains of the virus were not as virulent as what came across as the Delta. And now we are finding that the mutation again is, again, the Delta Plus, which is a very highly virulent virus. And so we are predicting that because of this high virulence, we might find that uh, the wave might be... Far more earlier than what it was last year. Quite possible. There could be that that angle to it also. But you know, there was this very um, this very viral uh, forward on WhatsApp. You know, um, the University of WhatsApp, which uh, put out a certain article, which said that you know because we are uh, vaccinating during a pandemic, we are creating more and more uh, mutations, and and the mutations are always going to be formed to go against, to beat the vaccine. So I don't know whether it's really true. We still need to peer review that article and see what it is. But I think the virulence does have a very high role in what makes this prediction.
1: Yeah, agree. Yeah.
2: Wow, I got somebody to agree to something. It's an amazing feeling.
0: Something that you said from WhatsApp.
2: (laughs) Exactly.
1: It may not be just the WhatsApp thing, but I can just tell you out of what the H1N1 uh, or the influenza vaccines that happen, you know. So we have every year the new strains. We identify the previous year's strains. We develop the vaccines for that. Okay. We don't have a fixed vaccine which says, you know, this is influenza vaccine and that's it. Yes. You know, take it. That's why we have annual flu vaccines. Because we know that these viruses are mutating and we need to be prepared for that. So, based on that knowledge, we can say that COVID is also, you know, uh, SARS-CoV-2 is also another type of virus which is going to mutate. And so, uh, you know, how virulent it is and all of that is like how... Uh, you know how you build the defense systems around it so yes uh, you know so
2: that that is that matters so we can expect the vaccine going to be tinkered on and we will have to take a, another vaccine down the line you know to to meet all these strains which do come
0: they will be tinkered upon and we can expect it awesome so on that note we will just take a quick break and we'll be right back where we'll talk about more about pediatrics how it's going to affect the kids and what is the way forward that the docs have figured out on the Odd Couple Podcast? Stay tuned.
1: You're listening to the Odd Couple Podcast. Odd Couple Podcast. A Pandemia Inc. production. Are you ready? A friendly fireside chat with friends where no topic is beyond a healthy discussion punctuated with a laugh or two. Check it out! Tune in every fortnight on your favorite podcast network.
0: And welcome back to the Odd Couple podcast. So today with us, we have Dr. Sujata Tyagrajan, who is a specialist in pediatrics and pediatrics ICU. And ma'am, for you, I have the next question, which is on everybody's mind. And we touched upon briefly earlier, that there's a lot of fear mongering that, that this particular strain, the next wave, the kids are going to be affected specifically. And you also mentioned that it's probably because they're not yet vaccinated. Now, how true is it and how what's the severity of this delta plus variant on kids and what is it that you're expecting during this third wave?
1: So what I can tell you about our experience of what happened with the delta variant, we don't know whether it is delta, but that is the expected one that caused the second wave. And we found that it didn't really matter what age the kids were. So, but definitely we saw kind of under 12, quite a few. And uh, the acute COVID, when we say it is in the first one or two weeks, the first week of illness. Okay. So if they got unwell, they got unwell in the first week itself. Okay. When they become unwell in the first week itself, they are likely to need ICU. That's how we saw the trend.
2: So by unwell, you mean the severity of the illness. It was not like, okay... It's going into the second week and now you're getting severe. It was like, it was, as soon as you fall sick, they were dropping in saturation and the seriousness was there. Okay.
1: Yeah. So there's a big difference between how adults present and how children present. So in adults, you see this kind of happy hypoxia. You monitor their oxygen levels and then, you know, they're still talking, but their oxygen saturations are like sitting in the seventies, eighties. Oh, wow. Um, That's how you saw in the adults. Whereas that's just not the case in children. Okay, They don't have that much reserves. We, you know, our children become very irritable, tired, all that compressed in like in no time. So they compensate well, but when they decompensate, they just spectacularly decompensate. And then you just need to be in the ICU, get things going. So that's how it is for children. Okay, And we don't do any fancy CT scans and those kind of things. What we found also with the Delta Plus variant The uh, children that needed to come to our ICU, they had like at least 40 to 50 percent of them had comorbidities. So when we say comorbidities, these are children who are either obese or they had other illnesses such as like chronic diseases. We find like asthmatic children, okay, they may have blood disorders, say thalassemia or leukemia, you know, or any other, um, you know, uh, ongoing you know diabetes the
2: renal problems yeah
1: like renal problem nephrotic syndrome so in our center i almost saw every system profile in our icu and those were the ones who were quite sick they needed a prolonged stay in the icu okay compared to the relatively well children who had acute covid so there were kids who had covid pneumonia and you know they were the ones that uh, needed ICU, but they didn't need to stay for too long if uh, they didn't have any comorbidities. Whereas, especially the disability ones, they needed the longest stay in our ICU.
2: But how was the, 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 the children who come into ICU, how was their recovery rate?
1: Yeah, spectacularly good.
2: Oh, really? So, once they come in and they get the support which is required, they're a resilient plot. then. So, so, they bounce back. They really do
1: well. Irrespective of their comorbidities, they did very well. Okay, almost everybody recovered very well. So, one other thing which uh, we found which uh, was interesting in kids was quite a few kids had appendicitis, you know, during as, or as part of COVID illness so those were the kids where there was a delay in the diagnosis okay so they would end up kind of waiting watching waiting you know going to different places not quite sure and those were the ones you know that uh, would have a very you know stormy course
2: is this what we call as the MISC if you can just elaborate what MISC is sure
1: so MISC is nothing but multi inflammatory syndrome in children MISC so what we find this is, you know, sub- approximately about two to six weeks or two to eight weeks following a acute COVID illness or an acute exposure to COVID illness, even though the child didn't get tested. So if their family had it or somebody else, they were exposed or they went to a large gathering or something like that. And the child had very mild symptoms. Still, it didn't predict, you know, who would get mis So it could be somebody with acute COVID like tested positive, recovered well, a mild course of illness, recovered well, or somebody who had mild illness did not get tested, a family member who was COVID positive, a child was well, irrespective of what it was, some kind of query COVID exposure or COVID illness, about 2 to 8 weeks during that time, they may come with a new episode of fever. They may have like an extended spectrum of other symptoms, such as they may come with seizures, you know, fits or tummy pain, vomiting, diarrhea. Tummy pain was a very common presentation with MIC. And then there could be like other variant presentations. So they can come with a skin rash, swelling in the lymph nodes in the neck. So these were some of the varied presentations and when they came in okay one of the common things that one of the systems that specifically gets involved is the heart so they go into something called cardiogenic shock and if that is little bit prolonged they can actually have multi system involvement as a result of that so the key is to actually early suspicion making sure that you think of it test for the covid antibodies and test for the acute covid as well some children may have both and then promptly treat them. So you check the inflammatory markers and then you promptly treat them. Uh, their recovery is fantastic.
0: Oh, that's, that's great to hear. So ma'am, another question that I have is that when should the parents take the kids to the hospital? So when is that right time so that we avoid crowding of hospitals? Also?
1: So one of the things that COVID taught us is how to make sure that the child and the family is kept safe without reaching the hospital as much as we can there is video consultation facility available what we find is a spectrum of presentations one is asymptomatic that means incidentally probably the other family members may be having covid uh, illness the child also gets screened and so they find that the covid uh, you know the test is covid positive whereas there are children with very mild illness say a little bit of fever cough cold then there is moderate illness little bit of symptoms but the child is leading a little bit uh, input so the child is not eating and drinking they're not their normal self they're passing less urine they're having a little bit of vomiting diarrhea so those are like the moderate illness We want to kind of review these spectrum and try to support them as much as possible at home. Then comes children who are like getting dehydrated getting tired they're having breathlessness they are not able to concentrate they may have seizures fits, and especially children with comorbidities, those are the ones that we have to watch out for very soon. We don't have any fancy medications that we give, like what we do for the adults. We try up as not to even do unnecessary blood tests. We don't do CT scans and things like that. So only if the child's fever is not responding to the paracetamol that they give at home or the supportive care that they're doing, and if the child is getting dehydrated, breathless, tired, any such things, We would recommend before coming to the hospital also to have a video consultation where possible, get the doctor to screen them, make sure that they understand what's going on and then head off to the the hospital accordingly. So there is now facilities for all of that. And I would also urge all the parents to identify, you know, at different stages, which is the nearest setup for them available. For example, if you think that your child is going to be unwell, or your child has comorbidities, which will be the potential PICU that you may be going to. So it is better to identify or talk to your referring, your primary pediatrician to find out in case my child gets unwell, which is the facility that I may be going to. So it's a good idea to just have that roadmap in your mind so that you can be prepared. And as I told you, the MISC, so your child may breeze through the acute COVID illness without any issues. Whereas about two to eight weeks following this acute exposure or the acute illness, if at all they have fever, that's something that they have to go back to and get it checked over. In their mind, they should be prepared to come to the hospital because MISC is something that we don't want to delay a diagnosis. Maybe one or two days they can have the supportive care. By third day, if they are not getting better, better to get a pediatrician to review them, get the test done. And then if they are confirmed to have high antibody levels. And if the fever is persisting, then get to the hospital to get the right treatment given.
2: So so most parents should keep a high uh, degree of suspicion if you are finding your child falling sick anywhere uh, two weeks after the, the episode of a COVID contact.
0: Another question which is top of mind for all parents, which I'm pretty sure is, during the second wave or even the first wave, when people were in the ICU or in the hospital with COVID, may not be in the ICU, but at least with oxygen and stuff like that. Uh, the kid and kin weren't allowed to come and meet the the thing, but they are adults. It's fine. What is the protocol for kids? Because keeping kids away from parents is both bad for the kid in terms of thing. And parents are going crazy anxious. So just to allay some fears and and calm some nerves, could you throw some light on that?
1: So it's a very, very good question. And it's a very emotionally, uh, you know, it really took an emotional toll, not just for the parents, but also for the staff and us who were taking care of these children. So we have a, a, you know, so-called like open policy for the parents. Okay. In PICU, we always allow, always and always allow at least one parent to be by the bedside, irrespective of COVID or not. That is the general policy we have. Because we find that the children's physiology becomes very difficult to interpret if anxiety and uh, that just throws in. If their heart rate shoot up and they're not able to take any of the treatment that we're giving, it doesn't
2: help. But I find it very difficult to uh, to treat the child when the physiology of the parents are changing because <laughs> the way they react, you know, sometimes it's easier to treat the child. And that's why I didn't do pediatrics, to be honest. <laughs> because I can deal with the child, I can't deal with the parents. <laughs> yeah. It's tough, uh, it's very tough. Yeah, and, But that brings me to the, the, the next question, which is, you know, because see, in the second wave, you know, We went in and we ramped up, we brought in lots of beds which had oxygens. But what we really needed the most were the ICU beds and that's where we were falling short. Because the oxygenated beds, okay, to a certain extent, those patients will recover. How many of those are going to go into the ICU? But what we're going to find when children are affected is that most parents get very anxious with their children the minute they start seeing even a slightest of symptoms. So it might just require quarantining for like a few days and then you can go back. But when parents see this in their children, they're not going to sit down, right? So we're going to see really anxious behaviors from parents and swarming of the hospitals with children.
1: I found a very interesting dynamics this season, actually. You know, so what I found was, as I told you, in the second wave, clusters were involved. Family clusters. Correct. So actually, many parents were, even if they wanted to, they themselves were not well enough that they had to leave their kids in the ICU in our care. What we did was we did twice a day or even SOS, WhatsApp video calls to these families to actually show them how their child was doing. What I found it very emotionally heartening was the kids supporting each other.
0: How sweet.
1: So we had a five-year-old child who was recovering and like ready to go home. And then we had an eight-year-old boy who just got admitted, who was so anxious. His dad couldn't be with him because he himself was unwell and was getting tested. But this child was very unwell and needed to be put on NIV. So we had to put a mask on him and the child was so claustrophobic to put the NIV mask on. So we had this uh, four-year-old girl telling this boy, Anna, please put the mask on. You will be able to go home just like me, you know. And this boy is like staring and seeing, you know, okay, now what do we do? So she told, all you have to do is to just wear this. And I found even very young infants around 10 to 12 months of age. So they naturally have a stranger anxiety. And these kids accepting all of us in all our uh, full PPE, accepting guys just, you know, so well, you know, it was very heartening. So, um, you know, in terms of the anxiety of the parents, I think, you know, it's about getting the balance right. What we found it very useful was at the time of admission itself. So we I did a lot of video counseling to a lot of people. There was no audios at all. I would just let them know Without my PPE, like with just my mask on to just explain to them who I am, who my, uh, you know, my team members are, I would show them how the PICU looks like inside and every day, at least two to three times we would show their child on the video. So they would see how their child is recovering, what is going on. And they felt empowered. What I found it very interesting was when the child got discharged and things like that, almost every parent took time to come and thank us and actually put up lots of Google reviews for us as well. (laughs) But I found that, you know, so, you know, it's a low cost adaptation. It is a need of the uh, moment. So we did lots of uh, WhatsApp video counseling that helped them. You know, some of the parents who couldn't see, they, they told, you know, can you do you mind just doing that? They were like, they became so tuned to it that, you know, OK, at this time we are going to and they would like readily sit there. We did even group video calls to the rest of their family members and everybody because somewhere at the hospital, somewhere at home. There were other siblings who were anxious so we showed everybody. So that really helped them cope a bit better.
2: That's what we saw. But if we look now again, ma'am, like I think um, me and you are blessed to be working in a center where we call a quaternary care, literally, which is, you know, we are like at the highest level of, of caregiving. But when we're going to drop down, we might not have the same support system. Most of these hospitals don't have it. Now, when you look at most hospitals, like any hospital, they'll have ICU and they'll have ICU beds. But pediatric ICUs, not all hospitals have that, right? Now, we were seeing and we have all this knowledge because we have a big pediatric unit. But there are a lot of hospitals which don't run with these ICUs. So now the whole problem is, even if we say that, okay, 97% of the children will be absolutely normal. We're only talking about those 3%, right? But what if 3% is just 1 lakh children? who are really going to require the ICU beds. The problem is that we don't have enough pediatric ICU beds. Yeah. So that is the fear quotient, I think, for me. Like if we saw a peak like the second wave where it went up and we have one lakh children who require pediatric ICU and only centers like ours have it. So that's where I think the whole ramping up really requires to be done. Absolutely true. Absolutely true.
1: So, you know, I think the awareness is very high now. That's where, you know, there's a lot of preparation going on. You see every uh, society, say IAP, Indian Academy of Pediatrics, even the state and central governments are like working towards it. Right now, almost every government hospital facility, even in the adult centers are told to stock up the equipment, And also keep at least 10 to 20% of their capacity of what they have right now reserved for children. So earlier, we had given away all our pediatric beds to adult services. It's the other way around now. So they have all been earmarked. And there's a lot of simulation drills going on. There's a lot of awareness being given. There's multiple meetings happening with various uh, levels of people. So it is at the nursing level, at the procurement level. At the uh, medical, uh, you know, the medical fraternity level, at the district level, at every, you know, individual center, and most importantly, a lot of ramping up is happening for the tele services. Each center, or you know, is trying to adapt as many districts as possible to provide that ongoing like support. We are also working towards it to see how we can associate ourselves with some key districts so that it's a throughput for them. We feel like we have supported them. We have like created a nursing module as well so that, you know, we can rapidly upskill them. We're working with some NGOs who are also kind of, you know, coming up with the procurements of, you know, what items we need and how to rapidly set up, say, a COVID care center. How do we model it for the care of children? And if at all, we have to put up a modular PICU How do we ramp it up? What equipment we need? So we have drawn up like a blueprint for each of these so that now if anybody contacts us, well, I'm like stuck. I need to like rapidly set up a five-bedded ICU. We'll be able to provide that help. So there's a lot of thinking going on to that effect. In fact, we in our center also have modular unit, which we have converted into a pediatric ER and we showed them how within three hours, we can set up a pediatric ER. So we have the, you know, we have taken a video of it to show how it can be done. So there are ways to handle it. And there are, you know, people have thought through this process. So to empower a lot of districts and everybody to handle the numbers and the skill needed to ramp it up. So there are a lot of like apps and everything being created right now so that we can like, train people
2: at a short notice no but that's the beauty of also what we find like you know what i mean if you look at the good side of all this coming what covid has taught us is how we just adapt to these type of scenarios like how the tech side has come in and the it company has has done so much you know for for like online, online buying, for creating apps, for telecommunication, etc. We have the government who's come in and removed so much of the red tape to to set up these type of centers for, for producing all these uh, oxygen, etc. I mean... Yeah, we, we we were caught off guard, but uh, I think, you know, we kind of bounced back really well and to the best we could and, you know, kind of pull out something, you know, out of all that disaster which was around us. So ma'am, do you think that we're going to find a vaccine being rolled out for children? I, I mean, because the... In the last wave, we just barely got across with Covaxin and all, which were lagging behind in their in their phase trials. So how far are we in, in, in getting the vaccine out for children? And can we see it in the near future?
1: Yeah, That's a good question, Ashish. So basically, right now, we have quite a few, like two years and plus, we are doing the vaccine trials. But predominantly, it is 12 years and plus that we are uh, looking at. And, uh, you know, so far, the trials are a little bit reassuring. We think the real rollout can happen only close to like September, October. We're not looking earlier than that, certainly, because we need at least like good three to six months to just see how things are, check their antibody levels and things like that. I think we had some fear initially about uh, vaccine rollout and the enrollment for these trials have been quite challenging, especially during the peak of second wave. To roll out for these but interestingly most of the kids that were enrolled were all doctors kids
0: <laughs> that is very reassuring
1: <laughs> <laughs> so we'll have to see how things go but yeah that is uh, something that you know in the uk and in the west you know the 12 years plus is already out so hopefully we will have we will see that rolling into india as well very
2: soon. but if you remember during when we were getting vaccinated during february and then you know i remember calling my neighbors and everybody send the 50 year old people over there is a vaccine come take it and nobody wanted it at that you know there was a certain fear until the whole second wave started and then you found lines which are going around the whole building so When it comes to children now, people are even more cautious. So even now we have a set of people who are still saying, I don't want the vaccine because I'm scared about the vaccine, right? Even after seeing that it really saves lives. So do you think that most parents are going to accept a vaccine which comes out? Will they take it? I mean, that's a million dollar question
1: right now. But I think what we need to do is to get the, you know, honest reports out. You know, let us see what the trials show. Let us make sure that the safety profile is appropriately studied. So that we also as pediatricians feel reassured to offer these vaccines to the children. And, you know, side effects is something that we have to anticipate. In a developing child, the remote side effects are something which we should be aware of. However, I think it's about whether the acute illness is so serious enough that the vaccination is a mandatory one. Is Time bound question. We have to wait for the results. We should, we have the responsibility for our future generation. We have that the moral responsibility to get it right and to do it ethically safely for them. So I want to make sure that and I look forward to making sure that vaccines that are released for children are safe for children and that we will be safely able to advocate it also. So uh, at this moment, that's how I'm going to look at it. I am also waiting to see how what the safety profile is so that we can offer it to children safely.
2: Well, let's be optimistic about it and hope that uh, we soon get something out and which is safe for the future generation.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Sujata, for joining us on the Odd Couple podcast. It is so nice to hear that one is from the preparation level, how well prepared we are for the kids uh, and to handle the whole third wave. It was really reassuring And I love that whole thing where the five-year-old kid actually helped and lessened the anxiety for an eight-year-old kid who was just getting admitted. I think that was so reassuring to hear. And I'm sure the parents are relieved to hear that doctors and your team are actually taking efforts to do video calls and lessen the anxiety on both the parents and kids. So I think we are very well prepared. And what you mentioned earlier in the podcast, we still need to maintain the COVID etiquettes even after getting the vaccine. We still need to mask up. We still need to maintain social distancing and do not head out anywhere where you really don't need to go. So I think those things still have to be maintained and followed until we conquer this particular pandemic. So thank you so much, Dr. Sujata, for joining the Odd Couple podcast. And doc- thank you, Dr. Sheesh, as usual, for being my partner in crime.
2: Thank you so much for All until right, next time. Bye-bye. See you on the other side. Bye-bye.